Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Pete Buttigieg has dropped out of the 2020 Democratic leadership race. Uh, Joe Biden's big win in South Carolina, giving him some momentum. We'll talk about all of that stuff. The Wet'suwet'en leaders and the Canadian government have reached a proposed agreement in the pipeline dispute. Michael Couture of Global News joins us to talk about it. And Canada has some of the highest cell phone rates in the world. Well, the CRTC hearings have now ended, and, well, they're going to make a decision as to whether or not they're going to force the Big Four to actually lower rates. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. U.S. political scene. It was a very uh, crazy weekend, of course, with the uh, South Carolina primary on Saturday, and Joe Biden was the big winner there. Tomorrow is what they call Super Tuesday, where there is a plethora of uh, primaries that are all taking place, and it's uh, going to be a game changer. Uh, and it's already a game changer for one of the candidates because he's not going to be in the race anymore, uh, Pete Buttigieg. Uh, of course, the former mayor of uh, South Bend, Indiana, uh, suspended his campaign yesterday. So what does this do to the field, and what does it do to Super Tuesday? Henry Jasek, professor of political science at McMaster University, uh, specializing in U.S. politics, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Hi, Henry. How are you this morning? Just great, Bill. Great to have you with us again. Okay. Surprised by the announcement yesterday? Um, I, I thought something was going to happen, that it was going to happen on Sunday. Uh, I didn't realize it would come up that quickly, but... Uh, I think we were. I was expecting that he he couldn't last too much longer as Mr. Budjic, because he simply you know he didn't have the money and he he was run he was not doing well in any of the primaries and he seemed like he was not going to you know get back to where he was with the very first primary uh, or sorry the uh, the voting in Iowa where in fact he did very well in the caucus there but after that he just sort of failed. So I thought I thought he he was flaming out, but uh, yeah, you, it's always a bit of a surprise when it happens, I guess. Would you, how would you evaluate his campaign? I mean, a lot of people. Uh, the, the consensus I seem to hear from an awful lot of people, Henry, was a uh, smart guy, very intelligent guy, uh, very thought you know well thought out answers, but just not his time. Well, that's par- part of it, I think. Uh, I you know early on, especially after Iowa, I looked at him and he looked. He said he looked to me like he had a lot of characteristics in a different time period that he, he reminded me a lot of John F. Kennedy in 1960 in the primary race there. He, he, he had a lot of his mannerisms, and, uh, and I said, well, maybe he... He didn't he, have his money, though, it. did he? Sorry? <laughs> he didn't have his money, though. No, he didn't have his money, uh, but, you know, and, uh, but he, yeah, but it was a different time period, different mm-hmm. people, and, uh, you know, there, but, but the way he acted, he, he had that sort of aura. But, but it did strike me as that essentially, now he has a very good education, he went to Harvard, but you know, giving speeches are very important. It's one thing I taught at Mac for a number of years. And the, his big problem and a bunch of the others compared to Bernie Sanders is they do not have you know, they often use vague words, and they use generalities. Sanders does very well because he's very specific and he's very concrete. And I was really amazed. I listened very carefully to the, you know, to the speech uh, Buttigieg gave last night. And in fact, what he did is he touched on a whole number of issues in a positive way that Bernie Sanders uh, 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 talked about on, on the night he won the Colorado um, primary, but Bernie was very, very specific. When Buttigieg talked about him, and he was in agreement with, with, with what uh, Bernie had to say that night, but it was very vague. Let me give you some examples. Yeah. So, a big issue in the U.S. is teacher salaries, by the way. Uh, they are notoriously underpaid, even by Canadian standards. And so Bernie Sanders said, 
we have to respect teachers more, and I want to establish a $60,000 minimum floor for all teachers in the United States. Buttigieg last night talks about we have to respect teachers more and pay them more. Much vaguer, the same point, in agreement with Bernie, much, much vaguer. And he did that on all these points. Bernie, Bernie Sanders has the ability to be very concrete. If he thinks people are being underpaid, say, at the low-income level, he wants to establish, he said, under federal jurisdiction, uh, $15 an hour minimum wage in the United States. And you go, he's, he's very specific about all his issues. It's very concrete, and it, it really grabs people, and it makes people feel, well, I know what this guy's going to do. He's laid it out concretely. Uh, he, he's laid out what he's going to do on the first day of his presidency. He's very, very specific. And Buttigieg and some of the and the, and the others, you know, other people in this race are often, you know, vague. They're on the same sort of wavelength, not as strong as Sanders. But the big difference, I think, is they're not specific. They're not concrete. They don't have an enthusiasm, seemingly enthusiasm for the specifics of what they're promising the uh, voters, the Democratic voters in the primary season. So it's, it, is, it, it is interesting to look, check out these different speeches. Te- yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, technique is so mu- uh, yeah. such an important part of this. I mean, that, let's face it, this is the age of multimedia and social media, and uh, you know what you say gets parsed and sliced and diced, and mm-hmm. uh, you're going to hear 10-second sound bites of everything. So you, everything's got to count. And, and that's, you're right. Some people are much better at it. Buttigieg, I thought, did a pretty decent job in his speech. It was the content, I think, that a lot yeah. of people were looking for. You're absolutely right. I was surprised, though, Henry, that uh, at this stage, anyway, uh, that a couple more people, like like, uh, are still in the race, probably shouldn't be. I mean, you know, the the main storyline here, obviously, besides Bernie Sanders, is that the middle of the road uh, candidates is, are in a logjam right now, and you know, the, if you add up all those votes. Uh, they're ahead of Sanders, I'm, so that tells you a little bit about where the Democratic Party might be. But as long as it's going to get divided up between Biden and 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 uh, Klobuchar and and yeah. Elizabeth Warren and now Mike Bloomberg, I mean, you know, Bernie could just coast on t- uh, tomorrow night. Well, he first of all, he's going to do one thing. Where there's 14 states that are voting tomorrow. One third of the delegates are going to be uh, chosen tomorrow, and the two biggest states, uh, California and Texas. Are, are are really very important, and Bernie's expected. Bernie Sanders is expected to do very very well there, so the, he, he should he should look very very you know good. And and the, you're right. The rest, the non you know the people who all think Bernie is too you know too too much out there on the, uh, in terms of promises and change. Uh, they're all they're all dividing, trying to divide a pie that is uh, you know that is uh, you know it it, it 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 has to be sliced in a lot of different places. So they just. You know, so it, it just allows Bernie to be in a stronger position uh, because he doesn't really have anybody vying for his, you know, for his delegates for the most part, except, you know, uh, Elizabeth Warren. But she is really fading. And yeah. I, I think after tomorrow, she's going to have to get out of the race. And uh, the same thing with uh, Gobachar up in uh, Minnesota. Uh, they'll they'll have to get out. Uh, I mean, I, I probably it would be good for Sanders if they got out earlier because he he really would be the favorite choice in both those states if the, the if those if those two home state senators weren't running. But uh, so yeah, I think they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna go out. So that should that, you know at some point pretty soon, and I th- think that'll also uh, you know shape the race a bit different. And I think we all expect that it's going to be a two-person race as we get into the you know uh, the latter part of the month and 
and, and later between this, uh, between Joe Biden and, and Sanders, and we'll just have to see how it's going to work out. But Sanders should be in the lead all the way to the convention. But the big concern is that, at least from his people, is he won't have a majority. And then on the second ballot, you'll have people who can change their their votes and. You also have what the people they call super delegates. These are people who are party officials, senators, congressmen, uh, who who will have a vote for the first time on the second ballot. And you know there is a concern by the Sanders people that they're more part of the establishment and they're more likely to vote for a more conservative leader. And in the end, that Biden might win on the second ballot. Henry, let's talk a little bit about Biden for a second. Big win, of course, in South Carolina right. on Saturday. I think he was pretty much expected he was going to win, but not by that margin. That's right. But is this uh, is this like twenty four hour momentum? I mean, you know, is he going to hit a brick wall with Super Tuesday? Well, he's certainly going to be overshadowed. I pointed out California and Texas. I don't expect Biden to really be, you know, to be able to be Sanders in those two states. South Carolina is an unusual place. First thing we would, you know, think about it is. The Democrats, no matter how big a victory they have, if they have a big victory in November, they're not going to win South Carolina. So I, I, I kind of find it amusing the Democrats make a big deal out of South Carolina when, in fact, they're not going to win that state. Uh, they'll win most of the South but before they'll win South Carolina. And so, and also, South Carolina is a little different. It is, it is the mo- it is has the highest black population in the southern part of the United States. Um, Joe Biden has has worked very hard together with Barack Obama. He was Barack Obama's vice president for eight years uh, in cultivating the senior leadership. And in South Carolina, the senior leaders have a big sway over the black population. And when the you know the major congressman, the major black congressman, who's the leader of the Democratic Party in uh, South Carolina, uh, right before the primary, said, "This is the guy I'm voting for," and he you know basically said that he he was very worried about. Sanders carrying, you know, uh, doing well in South Carolina, that that, that and I think swayed uh, many of the black voters, and he, particularly the ones over 40, but even many of the younger ones. But but South Carolina is an unusual state. The other states now there are other southern states that have a large black population. They they are they are they uh, are not as large as the South Carolina uh, population, and they probably don't have sort of these key leaders who who really have a great sway over over the entire black population so it this is probably this is south carolina is probably the best in, in percentage terms that uh, joe biden's going to be able to do for a while uh, maybe later on if everybody else falls out it might be different but i he's uh, he, i don't i think this is his his finest hour was on saturday i don't think he's going to be you know can get the uh, numbers that he got uh anywhere else that he got in South Carolina. The other factor involved in this, too, is obviously we keep talking about Super Tuesday and the voting tomorrow, right. but there were advanced polls, especially in, in those two large states, California right. and Texas. Uh, and I, the last number I saw, Henry, is about third, uh, a third of the people that are going to vote have already voted. Yes. So even any momentum that Biden might have picked up on Saturday, it does, it's immaterial because those people have already cast their ballots. Yeah, that's right. I think, I think that's an important point, a very good point to make. And also, one point, too, that people are all assuming, and it was sort of in some of the things that you were saying, and this is the conventional wisdom, which I have some questions about, is that when, uh, when these more moderate peop- other people drop out, that their voters are going to go to Biden. I'm not, I'm not so sure about that. 
uh, quite frankly, certainly the voters in Minnesota are more likely to be, uh, you know, are, have traditionally been much more favorable towards Sanders than to Biden. And, and uh, even, even in, um, even in uh, Massachusetts, even with War- Senator Warren, the, the Massachusetts senator in the race, uh, uh, Sanders has polled very well there. And uh, so I think there, you know, Sanders is going to get some of those other voters. He might even get Buttigieg voters, because part of it is the style. I have a feeling that some of those people are just going to, you know, they, 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 they will just be attracted to the type of energy and 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 you know specific things, specific issues that uh, Sanders is going to talk about, and also the fact that. Sanders is very much appealing to to the younger voters, and uh, his his whole argument his argument is he's going to bring out a whole bunch of new voters who haven't voted before, people under forty who have been you know not excited by who the Democrats have run, and he's going to bring them out, and and I can't think it you know I what I've thought is that. No one that talks about one election where I think, in fact, this happened because it happened so long ago. But 1932, a long time ago, but Franklin Delano Roosevelt was running against the incumbent Republican, and you know, whoever the depression had started already at that point. But if you looked at the voting that went on uh, between 1928 and 1932, Franklin Delano Roosevelt got a huge boost by all the. Uh, immigrants who had come to the United States in the early 20th century, plus their children if they came in the 1890s or 1880s. And it was the, all these new voters that Franklin Delano Roosevelt attracted to win in 1932. And I think we, Bernie Sanders is gonna tr- is, argues that he can do the same sort of thing. He can activate all these young people who in the past have been seen to be apathetic and not interested in politics, and he could bring out these large, large numbers of of people under forty, and so people, I think this is this is something I think doesn't get enough of attention by 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 the pundits in the U.S. because I think I think that energy and 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 all that new those new people coming into the electorate I think are are going to be very important. I know there was a, a lot to do about the you know the Hillary uh, Trump thing, of course, from four years ago. That's right, and and the fact that uh, Hillary actually got three million more votes. Uh, but the number that, as you mentioned, Henry, that people should be focusing on there is the huge number of Americans that just didn't vote at all four years ago because right. they they didn't like either one of them. That's exactly. that's the fertile ground right now for somebody to to try to 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 grab something. If you can harvest some of those votes, you're in pretty good shape. That's right. So to get those people who didn't vote, uh, but who would if they did vote, they would have voted for the Democratic candidate. That was certainly that's good for Sanders, and also the a coming of age of so many Latino voters in the United States. So many of them who are now becoming citizens, they're young. They they they're going to be voting. Many of them are voting for the first time, and the Sanders people have worked very hard with them. And we saw in in the Nevada primary where he where he won their voters, even even the people who belong to unions, where the union leaders told their vote their their members. Don't vote for Sanders. Vote vote for Biden. And many of the rank and file said, "No, we're going to go with Sanders. He's he's appealing to us a lot better than Biden is." So the these younger voters and these Hispanic voters are not, you know, are not going to be responding to the traditional elites in the Democratic Party. We as you know as as much as they did in South Carolina. South Carolina was just a a very unusual state, but I think in some of the other states, you're going to see young people are essentially essentially are going to 
you know, go vote for the the enthusiasm they see in the uh, Sanders race. Well, it's going to be an interesting 24 hours. Henry, as always, thanks for uh, setting the table for us on this. We'll talk again soon. Okay, very good, Bill. Henry Jasek, of course, a political science professor at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The wet sweat and leaders and the Canadian government, and for that matter, the B.C. government, uh, have reached a proposed agreement, we are told, in the pipeline dispute. Well, sort of an agreement anyway. Uh, but the details are rather sketchy at this stage, and the ramifications of this deal uh, are also rather sketchy. Michael Couture, Global News, uh, has been following this story. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Well, thanks for having me. I'm, tr- I'm trying to get a read on what's going on here, Mike. You know, we found out yesterday, as watching Global National last night with Robin, Robin Gill, and, and the, the deal is there. Uh, but th- this has not resolved the pipeline issue. What exactly were they talking about, and what have they resolved? It was more about land and title rights, and, and, and I think that speaks a little bit to the pipeline, but um, Chief Wass, who is the hereditary chief of uh, the Wet'suwet'en people, um, you know, said, I still don't like the pipeline. I, this doesn't solve that issue, but it's enough at this point that construction is restarting this morning, and I think it's enough to actually move forward because what they want, and it seems like what they may accomplish here, is to at least have a seat at the table going forward. They don't feel that they were properly consulted or consulted at all uh, through this coastal gasoline pipeline, even though it did go through the uh, the band council of the Wet'suwet'en Nation. And so it looks like moving forward, they will have to be at the table for future negotiations, not just members of that elected band council. I'm trying to read between the lines here because uh, Chief Wu's made an, a, a statement earlier, I guess it was late last week actually, Mike, uh, that suggested he doesn't really have a problem in opposition to pipelines per se. It's this one and where it is, uh, which seemed to indicate that there could be some wiggle room here. Yeah, and I think everybody had to get to a point where they felt like they could walk away with a win, and potentially that is the the back door that he left himself. And I think that you know Chief Wass also you know has to acknowledge that there are a good number of people on the territory um, who support this, and that this could provide employment to the people. So um, I, I think that's where the balance that he's trying to strike, even though um, they weren't consulted when it's going through their hereditary land. Um, uh, and they, you know, call themselves the the land keepers, uh, and they feel that it is their job to make sure that the land is maintained and that that the land uh, is kept pristine, and that any project going through it respects the land as well. Uh, and and I think that you know, obviously, they they take that uh, that job extremely seriously. And uh, it, it, you know, to your point, I think that we are getting to a point where everybody feels like they can walk away with this, having given up a little and having gotten a little. And with any good negotiation, uh, it's about finding that balance. Now, the reporting that we saw on this yesterday, this, this agreement uh, that, that they seem to have come to here, uh, actually stems from a, a, a court case that goes all the way back to 1984 that was never actually properly resolved, uh, which I think underscores probably the frustration that, uh, that the wet's wet who are feeling right now. That, uh, you know, not, they're just getting around to doing that now, th- these many years later. I mean, had that been done years ago, maybe we wouldn't be in this situation. Well, exactly. And I think, you know, the Wet'suwet'en people and all Indigenous people, uh, you know, when you talk about, uh, I would almost say that's just 23 years, you know, 1997, the Supreme Court decision, um, you know, that talked about this sort of land and title. 
But consider this. A couple of weeks ago, when Indigenous Services Minister Mark Miller met with the Mohawks of Tyndanaga, who were um, having that demonstration right beside the railway um, in Tyndanaga, Ontario, and, and, you know, really grinding rail traffic to a halt, uh, when he emerged from there, he said, look, this is them standing up in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs, but it is also about the 150 years that they feel like they have not been heard, that their concerns have not been brought to the forefront. And it's not just about the pipeline anymore. So going forward, I think what, what Canadians need to understand about the demonstrations and any of the blockades that are around the country is that this is not just about, okay, well, the, the box has been checked, the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs say they're happy, so all the blockades have to come down. And I think underscoring that is yesterday, uh, the person who speaks uh, for those at the blockade in Ganawage, Kenneth Deer, said, look, we have to have this discussion within the community ourselves. It is a big decision to remove this blockade. And if you look at it from, from that point of view and, and their point of view, they finally are being heard for, in, you know, in some cases, what they feel is the first time in 150 years. Do they have enough faith in the federal government and the provincial governments that these discussions will continue after the blockades come down? Or do they feel like they need that as the bargaining chip to continue to be heard? And I, I think those are the discussions that are going to be happening at some of these communities for today. It's a valid question, isn't it? I mean, because historically, uh, the answer is no. <laughs> Uh, so is this is this a, a sea change here? Exactly. And is this, uh, you know, I don't know more uh, 2.0. Is this where the government finally realizes that the road to reconciliation is a tough and bumpy one, but that they have maybe not been far down that road as much as they think they are? Uh, and now that Indigenous communities feel like they're being heard, they don't want to be... Um, you know, to pull down the protests, to pull down the blockades, and then to be on the back burner again. They want to make sure that they've been heard and the discussions will continue, that it won't just go off to the wayside and say, yeah, we'll take care of it because there's another burning hot topic that this government has to handle right away. And if you put yourself in their position, um, I, I think it's a very, very valid point. Well, what we saw over the weekend, the last few days, of course, with Minister Bennett and, and the BC government involved in the, the discussions, is is really a I think a massive improvement over what happened the last time, Mike. I mean, as you know, we've got one of the blockades just up the street from us here in in Caledonia again, uh, almost in the exact same spot where the Douglas Creek uh, incident happened some years yeah. ago. Uh, maybe some of the same protesters, I don't know, but I mean, they don't seem to be in any rush to take this thing down because, as you say, not a whole lot got resolved. I mean, the ultimate resolution, and I use that term advisedly, uh, with Douglas Creek was the provincial government bought the land, so basically t that took the argument away. But they're still there. Uh, it's not as if any of the treaties of, that they were concerned about have ever been resolved. So I, I can understand the frustration here. Yeah, and you have to think, um, you know, there there are traditions, um, but also people in Indigenous communities remember these things. We, as a Canadian public, may just go, oh, on to the next story, oh, we think about it. The memories of the Oka crisis are fresh in the minds of men. Ipperwash, fresh in the minds of many. And this is why this government, the federal government, did not go in with force at first, trying to make sure that they resolved it through discussions and, and, and peaceful dialogue. Um, but these communities know, and not to say that it's a playbook, but they understand 
that if they want to get attention and that if they want to play the card of putting up uh, blockades, that they can do it. And they, they have the right to do that. I'm not saying um, that it's uh, that it's wrong to do that. Not whatsoever. Don't get me wrong on that one, please. Um, but there is a history there. And they know that the government will move on to something else. And they don't want that to happen like it's happened so many other times. The key here is they feel like they're being heard and they want the issue to be resolved and not put on the back burner again. Is this discussion and this uh, supposed deal that uh, that they've, they've hammered out over the weekend, Mike, is, is that going to be the foundation for further talks on this? I mean, the ultimate goal, I would think, from the government standpoint anyway, uh, is to have the barricade down. As you mentioned, the, the, the workers at uh, Coastal GasLink are apparently are back to work today, uh, and we hope there aren't going to be any more interruptions. But ultimately, uh, tearing down the blockades or having them simply disassemble themselves uh, is, is what we're shooting for here. We're not there yet, are we? No, we're not. Um, and whether or not that will happen moving forward, again, are discussions that have to happen in different indigenous communities in Caledonia, Tyendinaga, Ganawage. Um, these are things that also can't be forced. It has to be made on their terms. Uh, and the government needs to continue the dialogue with people in these communities and saying, if you do take down this blockade, we will continue the discussion going forward. We will not forget about you. And I think that's the guarantee that a lot of these communities want because they know they have been, um, you know, shoved to the back burner for 150 years. They don't want it to happen again. It's it's interesting because uh, we're tying, I guess, two things here going along parallel paths. Of course, the, the Trudeau government's uh, commitment to reconciliation and then this. Uh, and they seem to have intersected, obviously, with what's going on in B.C. right now. Uh, and I, I'm just wondering if the government's going to look at this as a win uh, with Minister Bennett's work there to try to at least get them to an agreement uh, on this uh, and, and obviously get this thing resolved. Does this move the, the, the agenda of reconciliation further ahead? I think what they can do is say to Indigenous communities and to Canadians, look at the way we did this. Yes, it, there was a bit of pain and inconvenience. Indigenous communities will say that compares nothing to uh, the injustices that we've we've suffered for so many years. But the government will look at this and go, okay, so we didn't go in with bulldozers uh, when premiers were demanding us to. We had discussions. Conversations were what got to this point. And that's what we need to continue to do. I think the government might be concerned that rail blockades will now be part of the playbook of trying to move any uh, Indigenous issue forward. But I think um, what they're trying to do, and that's why you've seen Minister Bennett, Minister Miller out in the public often talking about having these kinds of discussions, is they're trying to show that we are open to talking, we are open to having these kinds of discussions to resolve things, and that it doesn't have to get to this point. Uh, and, you know, to your point of what, whether or not this will be the foundation, I think it does. I think it is something that they point to as we got to this good point with the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs by continuing dialogue and continuing conversation. Don't forget a couple of Fridays ago when Prime Minister Trudeau went out there and said, look, you can't have a one-sided conversation. Not that it started to move things, but things started to happen after that. Uh, it sounded like he was frustrated and whether or not uh, it, his patience is 
his patients had run out or others had pushed him to say your patients should be running out now. Uh, but that is when things restarted and the ball started rolling again. Uh, I'm not trying to give him you know, tons of credit for it, but there was a, clearly a limit to the patients that the federal government had. Uh, but I think they'll look back at this and say patients and discussions were the key to moving this forward and getting to a point where we could feel uh, like we're making progress. Well, the speculation late last week, obviously, is what's plan B if the, the negotiations don't work. I, I, I'm hoping we don't have to find that out, but I mean, that's, that's still hanging out there, isn't it? Well, it is. But at the same time, while um, opposition leaders have demanded that Prime Minister Trudeau meet with the hereditary chief straight out of the gate and say they could have saved all of this, uh, you know, I, I think that sometimes opposition parties got to do opposition party things, if I can say it that way. <laughs> but, um, you know, the calculation from the government side is that's our last card to play. And you can't play it early. If Prime Minister Trudeau is going to meet with somebody, it is your your Hail Mary, it's your swing for the fences, it is your last-ditch effort. And you can't do that early. So I think this government will look at it and say, we did all the steps that we had to do, um, and we didn't have to have Prime Minister Trudeau get in there and sort of get his hands dirty with it. Whether or not he will in, in, in the future... That's another question. Uh, but at this point, I think they look at this as a win. And, and as, uh, like we said, a bit of the playbook going forward is that, you know, the conversations are, are the key. Mike, we're just about out of time. But just one final question. And, and this, I'm asking it, I guess, crystal ball a little bit here. Uh, if Chief Wu's uh, says, okay, we've, we're all good here, we're good, uh, take the barricade down, are the other groups that we've just talked about here, are they going to follow that lead? They said they would, um, and uh, I appreciate you sort of letting me off the hook calling it a crystal ball because no <laughs> one's got one. Uh, or if anybody does, I mean, send one to me. I'd be really, I'd love to have it. Um, but I, I think it sort of goes back to my other point of whether or not in those communities they feel like the concerns of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs and their own concerns have been assuaged or at least addressed. Because um, think about it. It starts as a, as a pipeline protest and it starts as something for solidarity. And then when you realize that you're able to talk to uh, Mark Miller uh, and, you know, you can have a one-on-one, -on -one, you're getting texts back and forth from uh, a federal cabinet minister uh, and you have that line, um, you want to make sure that that conversation continues and you won't be forgotten after the barricades come down. And I think that's the calculation going on right now, that we're happy that, you know, um, this concern has been addressed, but there are other concerns that are now on the table and we need to continue to have those discussions. That's probably what these communities are wrestling with now. Mike Lucatur, Global News, of course. Uh, thanks for the time on this today, Mike, and for the clarity on this very pivotal time uh, with these negotiations. And uh, we'll be watching for your reporting on Global National. Thanks again. I appreciate you having me on. Michael Couture, of course, who's uh, got his eye on the pulse of what's going on up there and his finger on the pulse of what's going on up there. Uh, and as I say, it's not done yet, but they at least seem to have some uh, some negotiated settlements and uh, and I think a pretty strong foundation to move forward. And hopefully they can get this thing done uh, and uh, bring these barricades down and uh, get the economy back and all the other things that have been in such a furor over the last couple of days. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's lower cell phone rates. That seemed to be the focus of a, a number of hearings that the Canadian Radio Television Commission were holding over the last little while. And all the big players were there, the big three, of course, uh, Rogers, Tallis, and Bell. 
and a number of uh, consumer groups and advocacy groups. Uh, and boy, we we're getting different uh, messages from depending on who was at the podium at the time. Uh, but uh, the, the contention, of course, is that Canada has probably the highest, at least according to some of the data, uh, cell phone rates, in not just in the G7, but maybe even in the world. Uh, a point that uh, the big three, of course, uh, takes exception to, and they say that's not really the case. Well, look at your bill and uh, compare it to, to some other jurisdictions. Uh, I, I don't know if they resolved anything, but they certainly got a lot of the arguments out on the table. Uh, is this ever going to get resolved? And are we going to actually see uh, a, a more consumer-friendly approach to uh, cell phone rights in this country? I want to bring Marvin Ryder into the conversation, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at uh, McMaster University here in Hamilton. Marvin, good morning. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you, Bill. With all the stuff going on about uh, the coronavirus and, and blockades and everything, this these meetings kind of slipped under the radar. This is pretty important stuff because it's going to have an impact, I think, on an awful lot of us. Oh, abso- absolutely. Now, these hearings went on for nine days, or the better part of two weeks, and the, the theme of the hearing, or the focal point on the hearing, was something called, and forgive me for doing this to you, Bill, an MVNO, uh, which stands for a Mobile Virtual Network Operator. Now, what is that in plain English? Well, the, the hearing was about whether the big three or four, if you throw Shaw in yeah. the other three you mentioned, uh, whether they should be required to give some bandwidth that they use for cell phones to players who don't really have a lot of infrastructure in the game. That's what makes them a virtual network operator. And the theory is by allowing these small players into the market, you're going to create more competition. And what is more competition supposed to do? Help to drive down rates. So as you pointed out correctly, in the nine days, there were proponents on both sides. There were proponents from some of the small guys saying, yeah, you know, they, they won't give us very much bandwidth. They don't give us very good prices on it. They're, they're not doing what you have told them, CRTC, you want them to do, because you, CRTC, have said you want more affordable phones in Canada. Of course, the big four uh, responded by saying, wait, wait, wait a minute, hold up here. If you compare our rates today in 2020 to what they were just three or four years ago, they have come down. Uh, no, they aren't the lowest in the G7 or in the world, but, you know, compare a gigabyte of data a few years ago, that was $40, now it's $25, and we're working there. And, and, and by the way, CRTC, you want this thing called 5G, which is supposed to be the next generation of, of smartphone uh, uh, networks, if you will. Well, the problem with 5G compared to 4G, Bill, is that you've got to build a lot more towers to do it. It delivers 10 times the speed and much more data. It will allow you to drive, for instance, your uh, self-driving car and for it to get data from the world around it. But to do that, you've got to build probably 10 times as many towers as we have right now out there. And so, you know, the big four say... We were planning to put a billion dollars a year into 5G infrastructure for each of the next five years. If you're going to let all these little guys into the marketplace and make us bring our prices down, well, we're not going to have the money to put that kind of investment. What do you want, CRTC? Do you want the next generation, or do you want a few bucks less on the phone bill? And to be candid, of course, we don't know. The hearings end. The governors, if you will, of the CRTC thank everybody for attending, and then they, they go away and, and deliberate and think, and at some point, probably in four to six weeks, we're going to hear some tablets from on high. They'll come down from the mountain and say, this is the way the world is. But I would not want to be a betting man on which, they, which way they're going to go here. 
because the government, our federal government, has said both. They want us to be on the leading edge of technology, which means 5G deployment. On the other hand, the government has also said they want to have the middle class uh, have a more affordable phone bill. Which way the CRTC is going to break on this, anybody's guess. But this argument that they've come up with, and it's not new for it. We've heard this before, Marvin. That you know we're going to invest, and if and if you guys go ahead and force us to do this, we're going to lay off thousands of people, and yep. we're going to sue the government for lost revenues, and, and on and on and on. Isn't this the same argument that Bell gave when the the CRTC said you had to end your phone monopoly? Well, it it is, it is, and, and they're and they're still around, and and the those arguments still come back now. In fairness to everybody here, Bell does employ fewer people today than it used to employ. But then on the other hand, back when they had a monopoly, there was no Telus, there was no Rogers, there was no Shaw. So, yes, you may get rid of some people. It doesn't necessarily mean the industry is going to get rid of people. If we allow competition, that means other companies with other employees will be serving the market. Um, but I will say, and again, I don't mean to make this sound like I don't don't believe in the big guys. When we do these comparisons to places like Germany or France or the United Kingdom, uh, something we always have to remember is the geography of Canada. We are the second largest country in the world with a relatively small population in it, 37 million people. And especially those people who live in very urban environments, they want that leading edge of cell phone technology I have been worried for some time about the, the cities getting so far ahead. How do we keep the, the more suburban or rural areas up to speed? It's not exactly on point, Bill, but I have Internet at home, and my bandwidth is 2.5 megabits per second. If I was in downtown Toronto, I'd have gigabit e- Internet. Bell keeps talking about gigabit Internet, and I keep saying, well, you're lying because I don't have that in my neighborhood. There isn't the population density for Bell to make it a priority to bring the fiber optics necessary to deliver that. So what do we do here? Do we, bring, do we improve the standard in the rural areas? Do we keep pushing the urban areas to better and better bandwidth? And, and it's a big country to try to do all this, too. So easy to do in Singapore or Hong Kong or even, frankly, in Germany because it is so small geographically. Uh, so there is an extra cost to doing business here in Canada that you don't have in some of those other nations. But I'm not sure it justifies all of the extra costs that you and I spend on our phone bills. Uh, so that's the the argument about you know the technical side of this, and we want to invest in infrastructure, and 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 we've seen that by the way. I think I told you when we had this discussion a few months ago. I mean, even when we go up north, uh, uh, you know, there are a lot more towers that you know in the rural areas than there yeah. used to be even five years ago. I get that. But during one of these sessions, uh, during these nine-day sessions, I mean, the, the, the big honcho for CEO for, uh, for Bell, uh, Mirko Bibic, uh, said, quite frankly, he doesn't want to do anything that's going to harm shareholders' profits. Uh, so that doesn't hold up to do with building towers. That's putting people's you know, pocket, money in po- people's pockets. So there's still the, that factor. And, and I'm not going to pull the Bernie Saunders and say, forget about people shouldn't make a profit. I'm not there at all. But uh, where do you balance that, Marvin, between a profitable company, a company that's going to be viable like these four are, and, and w- somebody's got to look after the consumer, though. Right. And that is the role of the CRTC. So we do not have open competition in the phone service. We have a regulator. It's the same thing, say, with energy, Bill. We don't have open competition for natural gas or electricity, and so we have a board that oversees this, and it's their job 
to balance the need of the corporation to generate a profit and invest and so on and so forth, and at the same time balance that against the consumers, and it's up to these boards that govern things. So take the Ontario Energy Board, they're the one who determines whether or not somebody can raise their rates and how much they can raise their rates and how justifiable and so on and so forth. That is, This is the role of the CRTC when it comes to phones, whether they are landlines or smartphones, cell phones, what have you, to do that balancing act. And that's what these hearings were all about. Nine days of hearings. No one can say that the commissioners of the CRTC did not hear all the different points of view. At these hearings were affordability advocates, uh, advocates for uh, poverty, poverty advocates were there, uh, you know, the whole range from the big players down. So they certainly heard all the points of view, and now they have the task of trying to find that balancing point between them. My gut feeling says that I think they want a little more competition, so I don't think the big guys are going to win there. I think there will be more of these MVNOs in the marketplace to put a little pressure on them, but it isn't going to be the floodgates wide open. So you and I have talked about this before, Bill. You know, is Verizon suddenly going to come up from the United States and flood the Canadian market? That's many people's dreams because, boy, that would really bring the prices down. I don't think they're going to open the floodgates to that. So it's always a balancing point. I don't think we'll ever be able to boast that we have the lowest rates for these smartphones. But on the other hand, let's try to do something about affordability. Well, and that's, I, I think, the balance that the CRTC is trying to find. But, I mean, how do you move those yardsticks, Marvin, when every time you try to do this and say, look at... You know, let, and nobody's asking for an open market here, but uh, you know, there's got to be uh, some wiggle room here. But I mean, as you recall, a couple of years ago, it was the Harper government was still in charge, and I think Tony Clement actually was the guy, the minister in charge of this. I remember they announced they were going to open up bandwidth, and and yeah, Verizon and a few others said, "Hey, great!" Uh, within 24 hours, they said, "No, we changed our mind. We're never going to do it anymore." And, and you know darn well it was because they got pressure from these guys. Oh, so, of course. So where, where do you go in something like this? Every time these guys start to whine and say, "You know, you're going to kill our business," uh, the COTC usually buckles. <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> even even the competition bureau actually had status in these hearings, and they said there's there's not enough competition in in, the, in Canada here. You've got to have more companies cooperating and 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 competing here, and that's what the really, as you mentioned, that's economics 101. That's what drives rates down. Yeah, and and as this is why I say, in a way, the CRTC is damned if they do and damned if they don't. There is no way possible to make everybody happy, and they've got to try to find that middle ground between these extreme points of view. Uh, look, I don't ever blame anybody when they have a chance to go to the government to advocate for their position, whatever their position happens to be, and they'll always couch it in the terms, this is the worst thing possible, this is the best thing possible, don't do that, do this. And, and then it's up to very intelligent people, and I'd like to believe that the CRTC, these are not strictly political appointments that... Uh, you know, some old buddy who made a contribution shows up on the panel. These are supposed to be well-educated, well-versed individuals who have a sense of how the dynamics in the industry work. They are used to hearing these things. They're also used to discounting some of the pain and agony that the big guys always throw out on the table. And say, Yeah, yeah, we've heard that one before. Let's get down here. Let's get into the nitty-gritty. Um, and, and so I, I think they will find a balancing point. But to the consumer... Who, who really wants the rates. And you know what we do, Bill? We talk among ourselves, and we find out that we've got a friend in the United States or a friend in Mexico or a friend in Germany, and they're getting their all of these benefits for this teeny tiny price. What's wrong here? 
you know, we can't do that either. You can't compare the apples and, and oranges of these situations. But we have to keep pressing. We have to keep reminding them that there, there are consumers out there who need some kind of a deal to keep this thing affordable. Uh, I don't have a hugely expensive plan, but I spend uh, over $700 a year to have a cell phone in operation, and my cell phone is actually seven years old. Heaven forbid I go out and buy a new cell phone at over 1000 bucks. Think what that's going to cost me, and that's just for basic communications. So that seems to me to be wrong in this day and age when we have so many people struggling with poverty issues. So, again, I think the CRTC is under tremendous pressure here to find a balancing point that comes a little closer to the consumer and a little farther away from the big four. Well, and therein lies the problem. I mean, I'm not going to necessarily say cell phones are a necessity these days, but they certainly are a major tool in business. Uh, and even in residential properties, as you know, Marvin, I mean, in, in an effort to try to reduce household costs, an awful lot of people, of course, have dropped their landline and they're simply using the cell phone. Uh, but at the same time, if the rates aren't going to come down, it's, it's, it's really not helping them a whole lot. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're absolutely correct here. Now, I, I do again point out, and I don't think Bell is lying, that some aspects of their rate plans have gotten cheaper uh, over the last couple of years, but it's, they haven't moved far enough fast enough, in my mind, to avoid the CRTC allowing more competition and putting more pressure on them. One of, one of the problems when there is a, we call it an oligopoly, when there's only three or four big companies in the marketplace, is while they will do the right thing eventually, they tend to be very slow to do it. And this is where the CRTC needs uh, not just carrots, but sticks to prod them and say, no, you're not doing this fast enough. No, you're not doing this fast enough. Now, again, in fairness to the CRTC, they actually don't set the individual rate. They do allow the companies to figure out the rates, but they stand back and observe those, and then they comment on those to say, gee, I, I just don't think you've done enough for consumers at this point. And that's what these hearings, they hold these hearings of about every six months, and they are big affairs, they're legal affairs, they go on and on and on and on, but it's their source of data that they then use to set policy going forward. And with the change in government, remember we had an election in October, I think that triggered these hearings in late February. Uh, the, the Liberal government has been clear that they want to see a better deal for consumers. Now the question is, will the CRTC come through when they issue their uh, rulings in about four to six weeks? Yeah, they did actually make that a campaign promise uh, last fall, uh, the Liberals, that is, that they were going to do what they could, and I guess that's why these hearings are happening in the first place. But uh, they've got all the data in front of them now, they being the CRTC. It's just a matter of what they're going to do with this, and we'll certainly be watching closely. As always, Marvin, thanks so much for this. Great talking with you again today. Glad to be here, Bill. Okay. Marvin Ryder, of course, from the DeGroote School of Business. I hope he wasn't on his cell phone doing all that. Boy, that cost is going to be enormous. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.